We see that parents aren't afraid for schools to talk about race. We see that parents actually are not afraid in an age-appropriate way for schools to talk about LGBTQ issues. We see that warts and all history is what I like to call it, um, <laughs> is exactly what parents and families expect. Uh-huh. Like these are not controversial subjects if you poll American people. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit, and your host. Have you ever heard of the young adult novel, Dear Martin, written by Nick Stone? If you haven't, the book explores the journey of a Black teen who faces racism and police brutality. The protagonist writes imaginary letters to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to understand what the civil rights leader would have done in his situation. Sounds like a really relevant, timely, and insightful book, right? Well, earlier this year, an English teacher at Charlotte Secondary School asked her students to read Dear Martin during Black History Month. But guess what? She was fired after white parents in a predominantly Black and Latina school complained about the book. They said it was divisive and injected unwelcome political views on systemic racial inequalities. That's a direct quote. One can hear stories like this all around the country. In fact, there's been a 33% increase in book banning attempts in public schools compared to last year. My guest today, Heather Harding, is working to prevent the banning of anti-racism, anti-LGBTQ, and other content in our schools. Heather is the executive director of Campaign for Our Shared Future, a nonprofit that works with communities to stop the spread of disinformation and preserve curriculum in classrooms. In our conversation, Heather and I talk about the many ways teachers and schools are being threatened by extremist ideologies, as well as what we can do to fight back. So listen, it's so good to have you here, and I'm really glad that the schedules aligned, you know, so that we were able to do this because I think it's so important with the work that you're doing, Heather, at Campaign for Our Shared Future But it is my just real pleasure to be able to share space with you, you know. So I'll tell you, usually with Say More, I like to kick it off by giving uh, myself and guests a chance to reflect on something that's cracked us up recently. (laughs) I feel like, you know, that might be a bridge too far. There's just a lot going on. So what I'm going to do is switch it up a little bit, you know, and say, what is something that is giving you life, energy or perspective these days? Well, my go-to, I don't have to think about this a lot, Mm -hmm. luckily, because my go-to is always music. Mm -hmm. And I made a commitment to myself maybe about 10 years ago that I would commit to going to hear live music at least once a month. Mm -hmm. And I find these revival tours during the 50th year of hip hop. And also the Gen X stars of the 90s coming in and out of town, (laughs) both reflecting on our youth and our upbringing, but also how some folks have been able to enter middle age, as it were, with Mm -hmm. grace and maintain talent and connection with their audience. And I I really aspire for that. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. I think that is it's so inspirational. I mean, like Jill Scott is somebody I went to see her recently because, you know, all these albums with the 30th anniversary and the miseducation right. of Lauren Hill. And, you know, it's like 30 years ago, you say. Right. And, you know, it's really something to think <laughs> about how time flies, you know, all the cliches that you start to understand why they were so often repeated. Mm -hmm. And also this idea of relevance. Right. That's been really interesting. You know, like the idea that relevance requires youth. I don't know. I feel like that's a we're being bamboozled when we're told that story. So I love the <laughs> fact that, you know, we get to notice that, you know, in some really powerful models. I love that. So for me, um, music is certainly one, but I've also been spending a lot of time. I made a commitment that I would each weekend do something to expose myself, immerse myself in the arts, whatever that means, whether that's going to a museum, listening to poetry, going to a comedy show, whatever. Right. So, you know, that's just, I don't know, like when it feels like human beings have kind of lost their minds collectively, it's so helpful yeah. to see what happens when humans are sort of in their highest, most evolved state, you know, which I believe that creatives, when they're creating art, it's an example of that, right? So, yes. you know, I mean, there's some, there's some that I know you also draw on. Like I've been thinking a lot about Toni Morrison, you know, the source of self-regard is such an important resource for me right now. Yeah. In our earlier Say More conversation, we spoke to Carla, Carla Monteroso, and she talked about the quote where Tony breaks down the purpose of racism. And I know you know this quote, but I'm just going to say it again yeah. for the listening yeah. audience, because I think it, it bears repeating. The function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. And I've mentioned that quote, one, because I literally do refer to it every day in the season, and also because I feel like a lot of the work that you do, and we're going to get into this, Heather, connects to what happens when someone is not distracted. That a lot of your work, I believe, is about helping yourself and others in the education space protect themselves from the distraction of unreasonable attacks. So we're going to dig into that a bit more. Can I tell you, I used that quote. Uh, last week on an event yeah. for book banning. So I just want to say the quote has so much relevance in the moment. <laughs> yes, yes. And look, there, there, there's that word relevance. <laughs> Tony has transitioned to being an ancestor. I would say that she is relevant. Very, <laughs> it very. is not reserved. Relevance is not reserved for the chronologically young. Okay, so so let's dig into it a little bit. Tell us, Heather, a little bit about your story, meaning what are the things that you experienced in your childhood and your life that positioned you to be so passionate about your vocation today? So many, but for sure, I've been reflecting because I've been working in K-12 education now for almost 30 years. And I think my experience as a K-12 student is instructive for that reason. I am a child of the 80s. And I was plucked out of the regular classroom to be in a gifted and talented program mm -hmm. that nurtured my own artistic expression and writing. And I believe wholesale that a great public education can change the trajectory of your life. I believe it 
Totally. And it's mm. not always the case, but what I've seen in my own personal life and throughout my career is that it can really make a difference. And so I grew up in the Midwest in a small city, big town, and I was raised essentially by my single mother with lots of engagement from my father who lived in Massachusetts. But my mother was always civically engaged. She volunteered for the Human Rights Commission in our town. She was a member of the NAACP. She worked for economic development corporations of the 70s and 80s. We don't even have those anymore, but that used to be a thing. And one of the things that she did during my middle school or late elementary school years was run for school board. And in part, it was around her own training to be a politically and civically engaged person. Somebody encouraged her. But also, she understood the power of public education. And there was a spot that was open and she ran and she won. And she served on the school board for a term. And I remember the work that she put in to prepare for that. Mm -hmm. And then the things that she learned. I would sometimes be at the meetings in the corner doing my own homework while she did the, (laughs) we got to know the superintendent and the school leadership. And so to me, the public in public education is very personal. But it is also about like, if things don't go right, there are ways in the system Uh, to push in and make improvements. um, And we should all be committed to that. And so the work that we're doing at the campaign right now feels like a natural extension of that. But also because it's my mom connection, my mother was civically engaged. I remember like knocking doors for candidate Carter with her passing buttons out. And I think that is why I have such a significant belief that this public education work is about democracy mm-hmm. and we can't stand down right now. Okay. So there's a lot in that. And I don't think I knew that about you, that your mom had run for, I love that. See, I'll say more. You get to learn even more about people you've known and admired and loved there's for always years. Something new. There's always something new. You know, we have multitudes. Um, okay. So that's a really powerful kind of origin story to your work. You know, you and I are talking, Heather, as people who have more exposure than we may even want to what's actually happening to educators right now who are teaching multiracial student populations, teaching things that advance equity and civic leadership. But I'm not sure everyone in the Saymour community is aware. Can you talk to us about the efforts to ban certain types of content in schools today? Just making sure that we all have a baseline of awareness of what's actually happening right now. Okay, so this is where I bum you out. I'm generally a pleasant person. You see me smiling. Yeah. But it's bad out there. So I just have to tell you some bad things, some bad news. Yeah. You know, one, I think it's 32 states that pass these anti-CRT laws. In some cases, they are specific, but they really put in jeopardy our ability to tell a fair and accurate and inclusive history. To my listeners who may not know, CRT stands for Critical Race Theory. I know that term is thrown around a lot these days, and sadly, we hear it so much that it has really lost its original meaning. So I'll try to offer a very foundational definition for y'all. Critical Race Theory, or CRT, recognizes that racial hierarchies were embedded in many American laws and institutions, resulting in structural inequalities and imbalances. And the same is true for threats or 
don't say gay laws or divisive concept laws is what they're called Mm -hmm. around the social emotional learning tools that have just gotten into schools and help teachers navigate conflict and teach perseverance skills. Like all that stuff is threatened. The laws are vague in many states, which means that educators are left guessing. Yeah. So that is the state of the field. Um, In some cases, there are real penalties. Like you could lose your licensure or certification. You could lose your job if your school board gets involved or your state superintendent is crusading on Mm -hmm. uh, a political uh, intention. And some state superintendents are elected officials. And so that's, they don't know what to do. They're in the field trying to figure it out. We've got stories from Florida, stories from Oklahoma, like all the states are really Mm -hmm. struggling. And this is a problem. But in the name of book banning, PEN America, one of our greatest partners on this, 600% increase in challenges to book titles in public libraries and in school libraries. And what does that mean? (laughs) A 600% increase from two years ago. Um, We're animating a fear-based campaign that means that you can't teach books that have LGBTQ content, that feature characters of color, that tell stories of history that are fraught, but might even have like a victorious outcome. Mm -hmm. I was shocked in the New York Times last spring, a publisher where the Rosa Parks story was stripped of race, racial content. So the story was told with no marker of what the race of the people were involved. And I thought, gee, why would you want to do that? That's actually a story that all Americans should be proud of. We came out on the right side of segregation. Right, (laughs) right. Why would you want to do that? But I think, again, because this is politically animated and it's not really concerned with teaching and learning, the outcomes of executing on this are detrimental to the field. But then I would also say, like, I think in a profession where we've really struggled to improve the quality of what teachers can do, And we've learned so much about the importance of creating a more diverse profession. Mm -hmm. We're right in the throes and at the beginning of helping people come into this work. And they don't want to go to a school board meeting where somebody's going to be yelling at them. They don't want to go into a profession where just doing their jobs, they're going to lose their livelihood. Right. And I think like all of those things are really important to consider. Again, local school board is the place where you can actually arrest some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It used to be like a boring thing to be on the school board and people often don't even think about if they're voting or paying attention. But what we've seen is some courageous school boards stand up and say no. Uh And we've seen that, you know, really having the debate locally Mm -hmm. around books as timeless as Toni Morrison's Beloved, a really a highly banned book, talk about how, Um, important it is to have access to that kind of stuff and how we need to protect it. But yeah, I mean, it's bad out there. I hate to like be the bearer of bad news, but it is bad out there. And I think many of us maybe hoped it would go away, Mm -hmm. but it's going to take us linking arms and taking actions to say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to stand for this. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, don't apologize for telling us the truth. Right. You know, I mean, if the if the if the task is to turn poison into medicine, the truth is the way to to do that. So can you talk to me a little bit about how do you push the differentiation between nonpartisan and political 
action, because that's where I think a lot of people who care about a thriving multiracial democracy get stuck. So one, this extremist threat has said the quiet part out loud many times and in many venues. So what's really important to understand is that there is an interest on the part of politicians. So this is a political thing to revive a base or or scare people, frankly, especially families, have said that they want to undermine the trust that the public has always had in educators and our teachers, but also in the public system. Hmm. So a set of public goods come with the democracy that we're a part of, and public education is one of the things. So all you have to do is Google Christopher Rufo, some Steve Bannon. They've said this in the press. Mm. It's obvious. Yeah. And we have really witnessed a long history of leveraging politics to take away a good that all of us can enjoy. So I think that's important as framing. Mm-hmm. That does not negate the fact that coming out of a global pandemic when schools were closed and we didn't have good national health care, like parents are rightfully afraid and concerned, and it was a difficult time. This should be a time when we rally and come together. But in fact, there's a political effort to undermine us coming together Mm. and then separate us from a resource around schools. Um, And what that meant was the attack on so-called, I'm going to use my air quotes here, critical race theory. We can't even discuss the human relevance of gay families, LGBTQ students and families inside the classroom, or this idea that social emotional learning, which is, again, a jargon fancy term for teaching kids to persevere, to get along, to be kind to each other, right, is instead an indoctrination tool to separate students from their families. And, and that, you know, in some, some ways, teachers have weaponized their ability to support student learning. So like, I think what's important about that is helping people have simple words. Yeah. But also really getting to families around like, what do you want your teachers to be doing? What do you want the schools and how to be serving? And how are you plugged in? Not listening to a misinformation campaign, but actually working with educators to get your kids' dreams met. And that's really hard in a time where there's lots of misinformation and we're coming out of lockdown. Heather understands to save our public education system, we all really have to come together. With election season approaching soon, the Campaign for Our Shared Future recognizes this is a now or never mission. The nonprofit fights against politicians trying to limit inclusive curriculums in the classroom. From what we see as a set of sweeping anti-equity legislative and political efforts, our campaign is interested in stopping the proposal, passage, and implementation of anti-equity laws Mm. that result in sweeping book bans or closing access to a high-quality curriculum that punish educators for just doing their job Mm -hmm. and that really get in the way of all families having access to the public schools. So we work on tracking that kind of legislative effort at the state and local level. We help folks talk about the work. So we do messaging work, Mm -hmm. polling, as well as like K-12 is what I like to call like a jargon heavy field. We love our fancy words. And that's not helpful when the country is coming out of a pandemic that closed schools 
families need things and we need to be able to talk about them in plain language. Mm-hmm. And then we do some field and organizing and some explicit political work on our C4 side because we've learned that the best defense and offense is that local school board seat. So what we see is a political thing happening around us. I like to say politics landed on the schoolhouse door and not in the most productive way. Mm. So we have to not just be focused on the technical, which has really been the bulk of my career, but on the narrative and the political because it really matters and educators and families are hurting as a result of some of this legislation. And so that's what the campaign works on. So right now we are committed to a campaign through the presidential election. We originally were designed for 18 months and we would have folded up camp during the midterms, but this issue continues to be animated. Yeah. In 2022, there was, again, like, tons of legislation moving through state houses that were a real threat. In 2023, we see an equal amount, but it is not growing. Mm -hmm. And we know that 2024 being a presidential election year is going to be a thing that we need to stay on. But frankly, as long as there's demand for our services, we want to continue. I invite you to check out the campaign for our Shared Future website, which you can find in our show notes. Notice what the main page reads. An excellent K-12 education, inclusive of and accessible to all, is the foundation of a healthy multiracial democracy. That's so important. And so I had to ask Heather, what does a healthy multiracial democracy look like? Access, engagement, and shared community. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I first started doing this work, I started to remember from my own growing up the word tolerance. Hmm. It's not a popular word right now. That's true. (laughs) But it was an important word Hmm. whenever our country was going through transition. A multiracial democracy has to facilitate first stage tolerance of difference. And we're right in that moment, right? So in part, this is a pendulum swing that our country is going through as the demographic shift and as we grapple and reckon. We had a racial reckoning. It wasn't so long ago, even though we see lots of vestiges of it just floating away. But what's important is that until we can build the understanding, we have to be able to tolerate each other. And we're (laughs) all human. Yeah. So we got to come to the table on this and we cannot allow a small, it's actually a minority group that's driving this. Like it, and we do polling on this every quarter too. <laughs> yeah, We're yeah. really careful. And because we want to bring as many people in because this public good is important. But if you don't understand, if you disagree, can you learn to tolerate? Mm-hmm. your fellow human being. Mm. And that's why I think it's important to think about the neighbor frame. These are parents and real families right. who are coming to the table trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And how do we help them tolerate a little bit more difference until they understand? Mm. And knowing that our system actually has some flexibility already built in, that we don't get rid of that. You know, a lot of people are rallying around the cause of civic education and civic engagement right now Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. 
you know, just to be frank, I believe that the United States democracy in crisis, is in crisis. Um, we have challenges on every front around voting and engagement and representation and our, our central government function, you know, and it is fundamental to the democracy for us to have kids who are literate and who can engage in a different set of ideas yeah. and who can learn to love their neighbor. So for all of those reasons, mm -hmm. this is going to continue to be an important issue. I, I keep coming back to this, but I just want to underscore how scary it was for those of us with school-aged children during the shutdown and how it revealed a public institution that is central yeah. to our economy and to our ability to thrive. Schools do the work of teaching and learning, but they also play the role of supervising and creating more safety. Yes, absolutely. For us, for our young people. And without them, we are lost. Right. And we literally have gone through an experience together that if we were confused about that before, we we know it now. We shouldn't be now. Couple things. Uh, I'm a big believer in what some people call the Stockdale paradox. I call it my grandmother's wisdom. But you know, the principle is for listeners that you know the way that you get through something that seems unsurvivable is that you hold a duality. You are able to have an unshakable faith that the victory you seek is attainable for you. And you also couple that with an unblinking eye looking at the reality of the circumstances you're facing. And that if you can hold both of those things in the same mind, that you can make it through something that seems impossible. So in that spirit, you talked about curriculum, book banning. I was shocked and heartbroken to learn that Bell Hooks is another author who has been highly banned, The Love Ethic. How are you going to ban The Love <laughs> Ethic? But yet here we are. Talk a little bit about how teachers and school leaders are being impacted by extremist attacks. Because I think that one thing that is not commonly understood, and I don't need you to name names, but mm -hmm. one thing that is not commonly understood is just how vitriolic it is and how it is even beyond what we see in our news feeds. So one, we've seen teachers fired for using texts that were on a challenge or ban list. We've seen superintendents attacked for their equity efforts that have then been labeled as critical race theory, et cetera. And those are real impacts. Mm -hmm. But it's really the ambiguity between I've got this ban, I have a set of a professional knowledge and know-how of how to teach a subject, but there's a text on it or there's something in it that would alert the woke police. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just put it that way. And as a professional, teachers are struggling to figure out or calculate how much risk they can bear as individuals. Librarians, the same thing. We work with a couple of teachers of the year, in particular Willie Carver Jr., who stepped out, a teacher of the year from Kentucky, who decided to leave because mm. as an out gay man, te male teacher, was tired of the harassment mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. Amanda Jones, librarian of the year in a small rural southern Louisiana town who just went to a hearing to protect the public library. She's a school librarian and was doxxed and her life threatened, et cetera. And this sounds extreme because it is. I wish that I was like pulling these out of the headlines, but these are people that call and talk to us and tell us about things. But I think the masses of people are trying to figure out what they can and cannot do 
which then clouds their ability to do what they know is right for the teaching and learning of young people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for a while in the beginning of this work, they were really solo. We are seeing people come out and say and join arms with them, but we need even more. Yeah. Because the other thing is that we see a lot of folks who are getting activated to come to a school board meeting or a school event that's not in their area. In their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so when the other folks who are in the jurisdiction are silent, that's a big problem. That's right. That's right. You know, I think we have a good, we've got media really paying attention to this issue now, which I think is important, but they don't always get it right. That That's another embattled field. <laughs> and this is why I say the democracy is really, you know, challenged right now. But if you just think about it in terms of, you don't, you know, one of the things Going back to the tolerance issue is that in a library setting, I want all of the books to be accessible, but librarians have long had a process for allowing kids access to books. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Usually if the book is out of uh, their age range, is an age appropriate, or there are some questions, you get a call and the librarian says, would you let your child have this book? (laughs) This is, these are the issues, you know, as a mom, that's how I've always dealt with it. And, and we all know that that, that is individually tailored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It requires a relationship, but it is individually tailored. Increasingly, it's a minority voice who are taking away all the things that you as a parent or as a family mm-hmm. could make better decisions because you know your child and you know your values. And I think that's the thing that really worries me. Mm-hmm. And I know teachers in their their infinite wisdom are really grappling with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, what should I do that's most right for a kid's learning versus what should I do so I don't get fired or I don't lose my, my certification? Our educators are truly grappling with a lot. Having been a teacher myself, I can't stress how much I feel the struggle. But I'm thankful for people like Heather. She and her team at the Campaign for Our Shared Future created the Educator Defense Fund. The fund supports educators and school board members under attack. We need more money for the Educator Defense Fund, so I'm just going to tell you that, <laughs> but and your audience. But, you know, we do so much communications and training work because you have to get people out of talking through the jargon yeah. and get them talking in plain language. But secondly, nobody is prepared, actually, Tulane, for these kind of attacks, guerrilla warfare attacks. We've had nonprofits that have experienced their staff members getting gassed out on dates and surreptitiously being taped. Hmm. We have, I mean, who who would have guessed that that was coming? Who would have guessed it? <laughs> I go to work to a curriculum company and somebody asks me out on a date and then, you know, fools me into give, being on tape and saying something that's woke or about critical race. Like, that's not what we're accustomed to because we don't, we didn't decide we were going to work in politics. And so part <laughs> right. of the campaign's intent is to bring that expertise to the sector and mm-hmm. support them in getting out of that way. I mean, my favorite and heartfelt partners is Amanda Jones, who was this librarian in South Louisiana. I mean, they threatened her life. Mm. They threatened her grandma. The the town is like less than 5,000 people where she comes from. So she was concerned. Why would her neighbors do that? And then people were coming in and like, 
yes, we're going to call the FBI for you. We're going to help you put these things together Mm -hmm. because this was not what your career prepared you for. And yet what your career prepared you for is the most important work you can do. You know, teaching is still to me the most important work, taking care of young people, encouraging Mm -hmm. and nurturing their greatest talents. And so to see them attacked really does break my heart. And I think I don't want them worried about figuring out how to do that in their everyday life any more Mm -hmm. than I want them like learning how to shoot a gun. So we should come in and do it. We should do it until we beat back these Mm -hmm. extremist attacks um, so that people can focus on what they're really good at, which is hopefully teaching kids to read (laughs) or or finding that special talent that each young person has and pushing them along so that they can have a successful life. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that you might know about me, Heather, I'm not sure if you do, is that um, I geek out on uh, sort of neuroscience, you know, and these brains of ours and like how the the amount of plasticity that we have that they told us we lost by the age of six, you know, <laughs> when you and I were coming up in schools and turns out like these brains are mighty, you know, beautiful creations. And so one of the things that's true is that when we hear loud sounds, we assume power and strength. And that plays out, I think, really powerfully in this space. So, you know, there's some staggering statistic about the number of folks on the platform formerly known as Twitter that generate 80% of the content. It's it's like, you know, 8% or 10% or something like that. But, you know, the louder folks are, the larger we presume they are, the stronger we presume they are. And what you've said consistently that I want to really underscore for the Say More community is that there are more of us who believe in a thriving multiracial democracy than there are folks who are actively working against it. Now, they seem to be louder right now, but they are not larger in size. That's exactly right. It's never dipped below 70% of families and voters who want a public education that includes a fair and accurate history. Book banning especially, very unpopular, very un-American, and people are appalled. Because when they see it on the evening news, they think it's like some far off community. So when they find out it might be happening in their backyard, mm-hmm. they are appalled. But it is, it's important to be in touch. So that's why we poll quarterly so that we really understand and are in touch. It's not that parents and families have issue with their schools. Mm-hmm. That's not it. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying everything is perfect. But what we are saying is that they do expect a public school down the street that meets some of their needs and meets even more of their needs as we continue to perfect the system. Hmm. So for us, we see that parents aren't afraid for schools to talk about race. We see that parents actually are not afraid in an age-appropriate way for schools to talk about LGBTQ issues. We see that warts and all history is what I like to call it, (laughs) um, is exactly what parents and families expect. Uh Like, these are not controversial subjects if you poll American people. In fact, a recent poll showed that 87% of American parents believe classroom lessons about the history of racism prepare children to build a better future. Yet, it might not feel that way because of the type of voices that tend to be the loudest. But hey, we can speak our truth too. So next, I invited you all to contribute with your questions for Heather. 
If you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. There you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. So let me ask you some of the questions that are coming from our community. One is, what is one call to action that you would like to leave our listeners with? Engage with your school board. Go find out who is leading, who's in charge, what are they uh, supporting and advocating. And by the way, we called 2023 the year of the school board, there were almost 30,000 open school board seats. Wow. That's why it's important for each and every one of your listeners to know when their school board elections are and for them to to back candidates that reflect their values and not have that be hijacked. We also learned that school board elections are often like low turnout. Mm -hmm. And so animating 20 of your friends could swing the school board race. Wow. Wow. That's really important. Yeah. But also school board members are your local folks. So if you go and talk to them about an issue and educate them about an issue, they will appreciate it. They're often not paid. So providing that kind of input is important. So I know that you have unshakable faith because I can't imagine you would do this work if you did not. Right. And uh, be you know looking good and thriving in the ways that I know you are. So what are some of the bright spots that give you energy, hope, a sense of possibility? How do you keep your eyes on the prize, Heather? Yeah. I mean, once we had tools out there, we see people engaging and showing up for each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It's been amazing. We work with a coalition in Pennsylvania called Pennsylvania Wins that has had extreme engagement of Moms for Liberties chapters and other groups. And we have seen the young people come out collectively. We've seen moms join together and say, not in our community, not on our watch, Mm -hmm. uh, and really push for taking back their school board. Mm -hmm. That is a wonderful story. We've also seen, frankly, like educators who've been attacked repair and tell their stories in a way that they can do so safely. Wow. So Amanda and Willie are great examples of that. We have some others who we're working with. And it's not, it's it's a battle one, not the war one, but it really matters. I mean, I have been encouraged to see people, after taking a real hit, come and write about their story yes. because they don't want somebody it to happen to somebody else. Yeah. So we've seen yeah. that. Um, and then the young people are incredible and amazing. And, you know, I guess whenever you get to middle age, how we started this, like you start to depend on the young people <laughs> to come and save us. And they really have a deeper understanding of how to tolerate difference, but they also see a future. Like they're just less nostalgic, which I don't think is helpful in this moment. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.